There we go. Jeremiah chapter 14. Today, Jeremiah chapter 14. When you get to Jeremiah 14, you'll find there is a drought that has arrived, and most of this chapter is a prayer of Jeremiah. Now he has, as you'll see in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth. So it is the word of the Lord that came to, to Jeremiah, yet still most of this is praying by Jeremiah. He delivers a message from God, but also in prayer uh, to God. And so I've got um, six things here, and we'll kind of try to get through it relatively quickly as it en encompasses the whole chapter. Um, but uh, like we said in verse 1 there, the dearth that is there, it is a drought uh, that they are facing uh, now. So let's pray, and then we will dive in. Lord, thank you again for letting us be here this afternoon uh, to return to, 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 to seek your word, Lord, to seek to learn from it. So may we uh, have a, the passion for others as Jeremiah had. Lord, may we have the obedience um, to you that the people did not have. And God, may we understand you better because of these, these verses today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see here in Jeremiah chapter 14, number one, we see the whole nation felt the drought. The whole nation uh, felt the drought. Look in verse 2. I'm going to go quickly through these verses uh, today, but in verse two it says, "Judah mourneth, and the gates thereof languish; there uh, they are black unto the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up." We see there's no joy uh, in this in this situation. There's nowhere to rejoice in. I mean, yes, in every situation there's a we could rejoice in the Lord, but you can see in this punishment that is coming for the people, this drought that has come. You see there is no joy in the nation. Every single one of them are mourning, languishing, uh, going through uh, uh, much distress because of the drought. In verse 3, we see there's just really had been no success of anything because their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. So instead of servants, their children are working for them. Why? Because they can't feed servants. They can't um, pay la for labor. They can't do any of those sorts of things. So the kids are the ones that are being sent off. And when they go, it says, they come to the pits and find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. They were ashamed and confounded, by the way, because, uh, well, look at verse 4, because of the ground is chapped, there, there is no rain in the earth. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Um, someone who isn't really working hard doesn't typically have too much of a concern about the end result but people who are working and they're laboring and they're putting their heart and their soul into it and still nothing is produced that's where the shame comes farmers are very proud people at least the ones that I've met and uh, so they take great pride in their crop they understand that bad things can happen and ruin their crop but they great take great pride in the work and the effort that goes into that crop and so when they work and they work and they work and there's nothing that they can do to fix the problem, it, it brings sorrow, it brings hurt. And that's the situation here. These people, in verse 4, it says, the plowmen were ashamed. Those that are laboring, those that are working, there was literally nothing else they could have done. They did everything right, yet still, because of the drought, there was no reward, there was no uh, um, uh, harvest because of that. And so there is shame there. 
then it also points out in verses 5 and 6 that, that nothing could be spared. Uh, the hind also calved in the field and forsook it because there was no grass. The wild asses did stand in the high places. They snuffed up the wind like dragons. Their eyes did fail because there was no grass. Even the animals, the entire nation, every part of the nation was uh, um, experiencing this punishment, this discipline, this drought that God had sent their way. The entire nation felt it. Then we see, number two, the prayer of the nation. Verse 7 through verse 9, as we'll see here. O Lord, though our iniquity testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. For our backslidings are many, and we have sinned against thee. O hope of Israel, the Savior thereof, in time of trouble, thou shouldest thou... Uh, why shouldest thou be as a stranger in the land and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldest thou be as a man stonied, uh, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. In verse 7, sin is confessed. And I talked about this this morning. Jeremiah is confessing the sin and not the people of the land. Jeremiah is saying our sins are many, our backslidings are many. Uh, we have sinned against you, Lord. He also requests mercy uh, there in verse 9. Uh, and when he's asking the question, uh, Lord, why should, we, why should you be a stranger in, in the land of your people, a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry in the night? Why shouldst thou be a man of stony, as a mighty man that, that cannot save? Yet thou, Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. God, show us mercy. God, don't, don't leave us in this drought, Lord. Bring the, the, the rain that we need. Bring us back to prosperity uh, here. And that is the prayer of the nation, although ultimately it's Jeremiah's prayer, not so much the nation's prayer. So God has a response to it because it's Jeremiah's prayer and not the people's. Look in verse 10. He says, Thus saith the Lord unto this people, Thus have they loved to wonder. They have not refrained their feet. Therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. He says, Your request is denied. Why? Because these people are not qualified uh, to receive mercy, are not qualified to receive a pardon. They're not qualified in this case, for the punishment to go away, because everything that they've done has brought them this punishment. And because of their sins, he says, I will remember their sins, and, and, or remember their iniquity, and visit their sins. I'm going to punish them for the things that they have done. Um, really, did you think of this question, what reason did the people have to expect the God that they had rejected over and over and over again to answer their plea for mercy. Now, that should bring to us uh, an interesting lesson. Is God able to forgive? Yes. Is God willing to forgive? Yes. Is God uh, um, able to uh, um, bypass certain disciplines because of your repentance? Yes. God is able to do whatever He wants to do. And I believe if you go to God with a true, repentant heart, and say, God, forgive me, God will. But in this case, Jeremiah said, God, these people, are me included, have sinned, we've backslidden. God, show us mercy. And he looks at Jeremiah and says, these people haven't asked for mercy. These people aren't repentant of their sin. These people aren't asking for forgiveness. They just don't want the drought. <laughs> See, that's 
oftentimes, and this is natural, right? It's human nature. I don't want to get punished, so I'll say whatever I need to say so I don't get punished. And uh, maybe you've had success with that in the past, but God knows your heart. And if your heart isn't truly asking for forgiveness, then God's not going to forgive it. In verse 11, it says, Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people uh, for their good. He says, Jeremiah, stop praying for these people. These people have rejected the message that you've been preaching, the message that I've given you. These people have laughed at you. They've mocked you. They've been mean to you. These people have rejected you as well as, uh, as me. You think about this. Jeremiah is praying for the people who rejected him. God is our best example, and God has been rejected over and over again, and he still loves those who reject him. Ultimately, God loves them. But as a human being, we are so often incapable of loving those who do us wrong. And Jeremiah still, this is, this is convicting to me, Jeremiah still, with all the hatred that was shown towards him, with all the rejection that he personally faced, he was still able to pray for this people. Jeremiah, as a matter of fact, in verse 13, gives another excuse. So originally he comes in and, and Lord, this is your people, shouldn't you be their God? You shouldn't be a stranger in the land. You should be here, show mercy. God says, no, verse 13, Then said I, all Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, You shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you a short peace in this place. So now the, the excuse that Jeremiah comes to God with, with trying to find the reason for God to show mercy, he says, but God, the prophets have told the people that, that they won't face famine. They won't face the sword and violence. And, and so you're basically going to make the prophets liars. So he comes to God with that excuse, and God has a response for that as well. Verse 14, Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. God says, I don't care what they've said. They haven't said my message. I'm not the one that sent them. I'm not the one that told them there wouldn't be a famine. I'm not the one that told them there wouldn't be violence. God says, they prophesy a lie. They've come and said they're, they're coming by my name, but I did not send them. So God doesn't care if the prophets, uh, the prophets are made liars because they are liars. And God said, I'm not going to spare this, this situation. I'm not going to show mercy uh, in this situation simply because a bunch of fools went out and said I wasn't going to do it. You think there are people today that will say, oh, don't worry. God won't punish you for that. God loves all people. Well, the Bible, and we've said this almost every week, because God loves you, he's going to chasten you. And so to tell a sinner, to tell someone who is sinning, Oh, God loves you, so you live life the way you want to live it, the way that makes you happy. Because God loves you, he won't punish you. Actually, it's the exact opposite of that. And you see, oftentimes, we'll, we'll have people, and you'll, you can hear it. I'm telling you, it doesn't take much. Turn on the television on Sunday morning. You can probably find a message of someone that will tell you everything's going to be okay. God loves you. God loves everybody. We're all God's children. No, we're not all God's children. We're all God's creation. We're not all God's children. And it bothers me so badly when people say that. I had the opportunity last year in the basketball league the boys are in, um, they asked me to share a devotional at halftime. 
and decided to go with that thought because I, you hear it all the time, we're all God's children. And so I was able to present the gospel with leading off with the point that we're not all God's children, but we can be God's child. And you see, we get confused, uh, the world gets confused because you have some people toting a Bible saying, God loves you and you're his child, he's going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about repercussions of your actions because God is a merciful God and God loves you. Okay, the fact that God loves you uh, doesn't erase everything else that you do in your life. It doesn't erase the consequences of the things you do in your life. And so Jeremiah here is saying, but God, the prophet said that you wouldn't do any of this stuff. And God says, I don't care what the prophet said because they're not saying truth. They're, not, they're speaking lies. I never said that. And so basically he's saying you got blind leaders following blind people, the blind leading the blind. And guess what? That doesn't work out well. We see Jeremiah's doing his best here, and he continues. Look in verse 17 and 18. Therefore thou shalt say this word unto the limb, Let mine eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughters of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. If I go forth into the field, then behold the slain with the sword. And if I enter into the city, then behold them that are sick with famine. Yea, both the prophet and the priest go about into a land they know not. Here we see God's telling Jeremiah what to say, but we also know Jeremiah's life. He's going to go, and as he, as he goes through the city, he is going to mourn for the people. He's going to mourn for the situation that there is. Um, it is going to be a, a, a situation where the people will see Jeremiah walking through the city, his passion for the city, that they may see Jeremiah is not against them, he's for them. Jeremiah is trying to help them, and he's going to go, and as he goes, he's going to see everywhere he goes people who are have been slain with the sword or are sick with the famine and he's going to go and see all these things and if they will just go out and look for themselves they'll see it as well verse 19 we see jeremiah asking god to see the state of his people he says hast thou utterly rejected judah hath thy soul loathed zion why hast thou smitten us and there is no healing for us we <clears throat> we looked for peace and there is no good and for the time of healing and behold trouble i believe jeremiah here is humbly asking for God's help, for God's forgiveness. He says, look at the people where we are. Look at, your, look at your land. Look at your people. See how low they have come. They want peace, and, and they're not finding it. They want healing, and they're just getting more trouble. Now, we, again, we know the reason for this, and that comes in verse 20 as Jeremiah's confession of sin. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against Thee. So then in verse 21, we see an appeal to the promise of God. Do not abhor us for thy name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. Now this is a fair appeal by Jeremiah. The excuse about the, the prophets, eh, whatever. But here he appeals to God after the confession of the sins. And again, Jeremiah is the one making it, not the nation. But after that, he says, do not abhor us. For thy name's sake, God, for, for the sake of your name, for your glory, God, don't abhor us. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. God, remember what you promised. Now listen, God didn't forget, okay? Don't, don't ever think that you've got to remind God of what he said to you. You don't have to. Jeremiah does here, and he appeals on God's promises. And then, 
after his appeal, it's just strictly dependence that God will show mercy. Verse 22, uh, there, Are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Art not thou he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all things. Jeremiah says, God, you are the one, literally the one that can send rain. No one else can. We don't depend on Mother Nature. We don't depend on the God of rain or the God of clouds or the God of precipitation. I don't know which ones they are, but he says, God, you're the one that can give us the rain, the rain that we desperately need, and so we are going to wait for you. You see, when we ask for God's mercy, we also have to understand that everything is done in God's timing. Jeremiah, although he was passionate, although he cared very deeply for his people, although he was uh, going to God and saying, we've sinned, we, we need forgiveness, we're bad people, we're wicked people, we deserve this, this drought, but God, we, we, we ask for your mercy. At the end of it all, Jeremiah understands I've asked, now I have to wait. I've asked, now, Lord, it's, it's completely up to you. We've done what we need to do, Jeremiah had. Confessed the sins, I've, I've, I've admitted the sins, I've re repented of those sins. God, now we're going to wait for you to bring us the rain. Jeremiah, to me, is, is, a, is a very unique individual. As you read through the book of Jeremiah and we see different things going on, a lot of the focus is on the sin of the people. Yet, we just keep coming back to Jeremiah's love for his nation, his desire to see God spare, to see God forgive, to see God restore. Too many churches are in the business of screaming, God's going to judge you. And listen, God will. But sometimes the church is too caught up screaming judgment at people instead of mourning for a nation, instead of asking God for mercy, instead of understanding that, God, you're the only one that can heal this land. God, please do so. Be careful. Be careful how much you are excited about the destruction of the wicked. Measure that with how often you are praying for the wicked. Prayerfully mournfully praying, God, please spare. God, please restore. God, please save. I've been around too many people in my life. They're good people. But too many people in my life that have gotten a little bit too excited about the judgment that God's going to bring down on the earth. It's coming. We can't stop it. But I'll tell you, we should look at the wicked instead of going, yeah, God's going to get you. <laughs> we should be saying, Lord, save them. We shouldn't be excited about destruction. We should, we should be prayerfully, uh, I was going to use the word wishing, not wishing, prayerfully uh, asking God for help, for help to, to restore, for help to save. Jeremiah 14, I think, is a good example of that. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to have a burden for people the way that Jeremiah had a burden for his people. 
God, help us to love people unconditionally. Lord, help us to have um, uh, just compassion for our neighbors. God, although you are coming back and although judgment will one day come upon this earth, God, I pray that until then we would be faithful in trying to be a part of the solution, Lord, both in prayer and in action. And God, I pray that you'd help us just to do a better job of, of being burdened for our nation, for our neighbors, for our city, uh, for our community. God, help us to be what we ought to be. And Lord, thank you for your, your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for your loving kindness you've showed toward us. God, we give you all the honor, the praise, and the glory for what goes on in our lives and in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you for coming today and uh, for your faithfulness. Oh, we had a few people out today for different reasons, but it's good to see you here. I was, you were the ones I was hoping was going to come today anyhow. So uh, thank you for being here today and for your faithfulness. Uh, uh, thank you for your, uh, your kindness to Jens today and appreciated him coming and stopping into the service uh, this morning. We may have one more missionary pop in um, early next month as well and uh, excited about that already working on scheduling some for 2021 already got two scheduled and uh, i got a third one i'm supposed to talk to tomorrow to confirm a date with him as well but um uh, lord's been good to us so let's go out and tell the world about it and uh, excited to see you again we'll be back wednesday night at seven if you can come hope that you will and uh, for bible study and prayer time and then again sunday regular service times on sunday thank you all so much lord bless you uh, let's go ahead and be dismissed We'll go ahead and let the kids head on back to class. Good singing today. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1. One of the hardest things I have as a preacher is knowing where to go after I finish one series. So we finished Nehemiah and what we were going to cover in Nehemiah last week and then I I'm stuck. I'm like, oh no, what's next? And uh, start praying through. And actually, Philippians 4 was the area that I wanted to go to. And the Lord said, well, let's just start at Philippians 1 and work our way there. You'll eventually get there. So today we're going to look at Philippians 1, the first 11 verses of Philippians 1. And uh, we're looking at the church of Philippi. And you'll see here, uh, if you go back and look, we won't do it this morning, in Acts chapter 16, you'll see Paul on his second missionary journey finds his way to Philippi. He actually uh, got a, uh, a vision that said, come and help us. And uh, the Lord sent Paul that direction and not the original area he was planning on going, but he went as God directed him to go and helped with the establishing of the church in Philippi and, and, uh, and, and helped the church there. And so now this is uh, years later where Paul is writing a letter to the Philippians and uh, we have it recorded by the inspiration of the Lord for us here in Scriptures. And, uh, and so let's read the first 11 verses here of Philippians chapter 1. We'll pray, and then we'll kind of jump through uh, these 11 verses. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, that's obviously Paul and Timothy, to all the saints in Jesus Christ uh, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine,
for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think of this of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my bonds and in my defense, or the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. Lord, I pray for your help this morning as we open up the book of Philippians and we begin to study through uh, this letter to this church. And Lord, I pray that we would begin even now to learn and to grow. And Lord, that you would challenge us through your word this morning. God, I pray as we look at just this introductory uh, uh, part of this book and of this letter, Lord, I pray that you would be able to speak to our hearts in areas that we need to grow and improve in. And Lord, I pray that as well you would encourage us. There is much encouragement in this passage. Lord, I pray that as I present these 11 verses that I would do it clearly and that I would do it correctly. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We see here this, again, this letter being written. Um, there are really two different kinds of letters. I'm sure there's more than that, I suppose. But uh, you have a letter of encouragement, a letter of friendly letter, and then you have a letter of admonishment uh, sometimes as well. And I don't know if you've ever met the person who likes to write strongly worded letters, uh, whether it be to politicians or to uh, uh, different people in the world, to let them know how they feel about something. My wife is, is a, a letter writer in the sense that if she has confrontation, she would prefer to do it through a letter form uh, than through verbal form because she'll cry if she's talking to you in person. So, uh, so, And I haven't gotten one of these letters in a long time, thankfully, but uh, early on in our marriage, every now and then I'd walk in and there'd be a letter waiting for me, and it wasn't a sweet lovey-dovey letter. She was willing to say that to my face, but uh, the other things I got to read and then have a conversation with her about. And I've heard many people talk about writing strongly worded letters to their bosses uh, or to politicians or to different things like that as well. Here, Paul is writing uh, to the church of Philippi, and he includes Timothy as a author of this letter, although Timothy was just uh, serving with Paul and, and as far as we can tell, didn't actually have anything to do with the writing of the letter. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we see this letter written. So let's start. I've got three things today. Uh, the letter, uh, the love, and the prayer. So let's start off with the letter. The first two verses cover this. Who is this letter from? It is worded uh, here so well in verse number one, the servants of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ. Christ. I don't do this a lot because I'm afraid it makes people think that I'm trying to sound smart, and I think by now you know better. But the Greek word doulos is the word used here for servants, the idea of being bound to or property or purchased property of. Now, let me say this because I didn't know this until I had and was forced to take Greek class in college. Um, but when I took Greek class, one thing I learned is it does help me understand a little better the things that are that are in the Bible. The New Testament is mostly written in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew. And, uh, and so I never took Hebrew. I, I chose the Bible major that didn't make me take Hebrew and only made me take Greek. Uh, so I never studied Hebrew, but 
uh, in the Greek, one of the things I was talking to the teenagers about this this morning, the Greeks use more words than we do. And in English, we have usually a word that we use. So for instance, love is a good example. Uh, we use the word love. In the Greek, they had multiple words for the word love that kind of defined what kind of love they were talking about. So if you take the time, anybody can do this. It's free. You can Google it. Um, there's different apps that you can download. But if you have a chance to have a concordance or a Greek uh, um, uh, Bible of some sort that will have it, I have it online, so I just hit the button on the word, and it tells me what the Greek word is and what that Greek word meant. And it really does help if you're just taking time to study the Bible. It can help you. and You don't have to actually know Greek. You just have to, to pull it up in, online. Pretty simple. But it can help you kind of better understand uh, exactly what's going in. And the Lord helps with it, obviously, more so than knowing Greek. Uh, and you don't have to know Greek or study Greek or even look up Greek to understand the Bible. God will help you. But if you're trying to study out things, it is helpful. And here this word for servant used in the Greek gives us the idea of, again, of being purchased property of or bound to. And Paul and Timothy remind us here of the importance of the fact that they are servants to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ purchased Paul and Timothy. Christ purchased me. And Christ, uh, Lord willing, has purchased you as well. You see, when we are saved, we are then purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, he purchased, he paid the penalty, he paid the price of our sin. And so if I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, if I have put my trust and my faith in Jesus Christ to save me from my sins and from the penalty of my sins, I am then purchased by Jesus Christ. I am now a servant of Jesus Christ. The great thing about God is he expects and he, and he desires for us to serve him. But God doesn't make us in the sense that God gives you the choice. Are you going to obey or are you going to disobey? And when you disobey, there will be consequences. When you don't follow God, there are consequences. Uh, but God is not like a slave master um, as you think of slave masters. But Christ did purchase us with his blood that was shed on Calvary. Christ purchased Paul and Timothy, and they understood as they addressed this church, we are not servants to the church. We are not servants to the Christians. We are not servants to anyone on this earth, but we are servants of Jesus Christ. This letter is from the servants of Christ, Paul and Timothy. And, and again, I mentioned this at the beginning, but I think it's a good lesson here, Paul including Timothy as he writes this letter. You see, the Bible teaches us that the older Christians, the more mature Christians, are to help train and teach and bring under uh, their wings, so to say, the younger Christians. It's important for mature Christians, so not necessarily even in age, sometimes it is just someone who knows the Bible, who studied the Bible longer, a more mature Christian, uh, can bring on someone else underneath them and help to teach and to train and show them what the Bible says about different things and teach them. Paul is doing that with Timothy. He's training him for the ministry. And he includes Timothy here. And I think sometimes we get a little lost in, well, the older are supposed to teach and train and lead the younger. We fail sometimes to include the younger. I've met too many older uh, people who are mentors to younger Christians, but the younger Christians don't know how to do anything because all they've been doing is getting coffee for the older Christian or just kind of following along on a leash instead of actually being involved in and actually getting hands-on experience and training in the things of the Bible. If you are teaching someone how to share the gospel, 
You want to show them by example. You want to teach them that way. So you show them this is how you share the gospel. You take them with them as you meet with somebody for coffee and share the gospel with them. My dad um, did this with me. I remember very clearly, I, I don't remember how old I was. I would assume seven, eight, nine years old, somewhere in that range. My dad had scheduled a meeting with a minor league baseball player. He played for a team in New Orleans, but they were in Nashville playing baseball. My dad had met him uh, through a mutual friend. And so dad said, Vince, why don't you come with me? Um, we're going to take John out to eat, and uh, we're going to share the gospel with him. And uh, so we went, and we went to Cracker Barrel. I remember uh, I got one of the uh, glass-bottled root beers. And uh, the only the bad thing I learned that day was you don't get free refills when you get the glass bottle at at Cracker Barrel, you have to get the cup if you want a free refill. So I only got one. But anyways, uh, I got some ice cream. I remember that too as well. And we ate and just had conversation uh, with John. And then afterwards, we went back to the hotel where the team was staying and found an empty conference room. And my dad shared the gospel that day with John, let him know that God loved him and that even though John was a sinner and although John deserved hell, as so did I and my father, uh, that Jesus Christ came to this earth to pay the price for his sin. My dad used an illustration about a plane ticket, and I don't remember it all exactly how he did it, but he talked about the fact that Jesus Christ was the gift being offered to John, a free gift, nothing that John had to do for it, no works that John had to do. It was just simply he had to receive the gift that Jesus Christ offered. And I remember John watching and listening, and I remember John bowing his head and praying and asking God to be his Savior. And it was that, that was really the first time that outside of a church setting I had seen the gospel shared, but I still remember it. My dad has done that with many different people, uh, co-workers over the past and friends and different people that he's met. And, and he has taught through showing me, but not only do you teach by showing, you actually have to allow the person you're teaching to try it every now and then. Otherwise, they'll be left alone and you won't know if they've actually received the training and the teaching and understand it so well. I remember our youth pastor in ninth grade, he, he had what he called a youth council. He had about, I think it was eight of us, four guys and four girls, and he used us in planning activities and doing different things. And one of the things that we had to do in order to be on the youth council was we had to go out every week during the church's uh, door knocking time and go out and share the gospel with people. Now, I don't know that I would do it the same way he did. They took us out in a van, dropped us off in a neighborhood, and said, we'll pick you up in an hour. Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure that was the best, best way to do it. But nonetheless, they sat us in a room and taught us, this is how you share the gospel. This is what the gospel is. These are verses you can use. This is kind of how you can initiate the conversation, things like that. And then they sent us out to do it. And you see, oftentimes when we get caught up in this mentorship or this idea of a, of a more mature or older Christian teaching a younger Christian, we get a little caught up in the, uh, the enjoyment of being the teacher, and we fail to actually train. And you see, Paul with Timothy not only taught Paul, and I'm sure they had many great conversations on their journeys and travelings, but he also included Timothy. And so as he wrote the church of Philippi, he was helping Timothy for down the road to have a better rapport with this church and understanding that they would respect him better. Because, you know, Paul was a, uh, quite the guy. And you imagine that when Paul was, knew that eventually his life was going to end, his ministry was going to end, Paul was the kind of guy that, that you could oftentimes maybe fall into this trap of going, well, you're not Paul. You know, you're not as good as Paul. You don't preach as good as Paul. Or you don't have the same testimony as Paul. Or you don't have the same charisma as Paul. Or whatever it is, Paul was wise in including Timothy in his ministry with these churches so they understood, hey, it's me, Paul, as well as Timothy, we're writing to you as servants of God, 
uh, here this letter to you all in the church. That's important to remember. So it's from the servants of Christ. It's to the saints uh, there at Philippi, it says in verse number 1, uh, to the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. So he addresses the entire church, not just the leadership of the church. He does mention the bishops and deacons, which is the two offices that God has ordained for the church. Sometimes churches have other offices, and it's perfectly fine. Uh, but these are the two offices we read about in the Bible. It's given qualif qualifications in the Bible. Bishops, pastors, same thing, uh, uh, just different terminology, and then the deacons as well. And so we see this, this letter is being written to the church at Philippi, to those that were in the church uh, there, uh, uh, Philippi Baptist Church, or whatever, uh, it's just the Church of Philippi. All right, so then, that's the letter. Number two, let's look at the love that Paul had as he's sharing here, and as he's writing, and he's reaching out to the Church of Philippi. He really shows the love that he has to the people. Look in verse number three. It says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So in showing forth the love that Paul had, uh, number one is joyful remembrance. He's thinking about the people that he's met, the people that are there, the people he has relationship with, and it brings him joy. Why? Because there are people that are like-minded Christians in a church that are serving God just as Paul is serving God, and so it brings forth a joyful remembrance of the people. In verse number 4, it says, "...always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy." We see continual prayer by Paul as well. If you love someone, you're going to pray for them. This is a good, good remembrance for us, a reminder for us. If we love our neighbor, we're going to pray for our neighbor. If we love our authority, we're going to pray for our authority. If we love our enemy, we're going to pray for our enemy. If we love our church brothers and sisters, we're going to pray for our church brothers and sisters. If we love our spouse, we're going to pray for our spouse. See, Paul had continual prayer. Always in every prayer of mine uh, for you all, making requests with joy a joyful remembrance he also had continual prayer verse number five godly fellowship it says in verse number five for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now you know i can tell you there is nothing better i enjoy having fellowship with really anybody i enjoy having conversation uh friendly conversations talking and and having different things there but there is nothing like godly fellowship there's nothing like sitting down with someone who encourages you in christ there's nothing like uh, sharing time with someone that, uh, that spends their time encouraging you in God as opposed to complaining all the time. I don't know about you, and I don't mean this to be a knock on, on my coworkers, but in most cases, if you come in, especially on Mondays, and you ask someone how they're doing, their first response typically isn't something excellent. It might be, I'm doing fine, or I'm doing good, or I'm doing whatever. If you start asking questions about the weekend, it's usually, well, it went over too fast. You know, well, I'm doing okay for a Monday. Well, you know, those kinds of things. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that as far as it, it is what it is, right? But to actually have opportunities to sit down and talk with fellow Christians, with fellow believers, what a joy it brings. Uh, I know every year I go down to the men's conference, the men's retreat, and every year I, I meet up with uh, folks from our church that we pastor at in Indiana, and we have lunch together and and then we go to the retreat and spend time together at the retreat. There's other people at the retreat that I've known throughout the years. And just a chance to sit down and talk with people that ask me about the church. And we'll talk about different things going on and, and, and bring up memories from the past and, and all these sorts of things. And I remember I come away every year um, uh, challenged by the preaching, but also just encouraged by the fellowship. Just an opportunity to sit down with people from across the country 
and talk about the things of God. Just encouragement. It's not even super spiritual conversation. It's just edifying conversation. It's uplifting conversation. It's friendly. It's joyful. It is uh, um, common as far as we, we are having godly fellowship. We're not talking about sports. We're not talking about um, our work. We're not talking about those things. We're just, we're just enjoying each other's company of like-minded people. I have friends from college that are pastors of churches or work in different churches, and we're different. We have different philosophies of ministry. We have different, even some doctrinal things and different, some standard things and things like that. And I still enjoy the, 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 the conversations that we occasionally have, but it's different because we are different in the way that we serve God or the way that we uh, worship God. And so when I sit down with people who worship the same way that I do, it's just encouraging. It's just edifying. And here we see that being brought up, the godly fellowship that was had between Paul and this church. Then in verse number 6, we see a Christian confidence. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We see here this confidence that God will see us through, that God's work does not go unfinished. The God that started will be the God that finishes. The God that started will be the God that provides. The God that started and, and helped in the early days of your church will be the God that carries you through every day of the church. Acts 5.39 says, If it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. If God is part of it, you cannot, uh, you cannot win against it. If God is for it, it will last. If God is for it, it will succeed. And definitions of success is different to every person, but all that matters is that it matches God's definition of success. And here is a confidence that the God that started the church of Philippi is going to see you through and perform it until Christ's return. You know, the God that started this church, my family, the people that God used to start it, but without God, this church wouldn't have made it off the ground. Honestly, without God, the church, I don't know how we would have got our first building. I don't know how we would have got our second building. I don't know how we would have got our third building, and I surely don't know how we would have got this building. Without God, I don't know how we would have gotten any person to attend the service. Uh, without God, I don't know how uh, we would have paid the bills. Without God, I don't know how anything would have worked, and honestly, I don't think it would have. There's a confidence that Christians can have knowing that the, the God who began a good work is the God that will perform the good work, the God that will see it through. Then we see a passionate partnership uh, here as well. Look in verse number 7. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my bonds and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. We see a passionate passionate partnership between Paul and the church at Philippi. He says in verse 7 that you are all partakers of my grace. Here he's saying the grace that God has offered me, the grace that God has provided for me to serve and to work and to, to minister, you all have benefited from these things. You all have been a part of that. And you see, that's the way with Christians. As God takes care of us and as God provides for us and as God blesses us, it, it oozes out to other people as well. It involves and it includes and it impacts other people as well. For the, the goodness that God has given me, for the grace that God has given me, for the mercy that God has given me, for the blessings that God has given me, it has impacted you as well because you've been a part of it. God's providing for us in 2014 to start the church impacts the newest people in our church. 
Because without God's provision in 2014, we wouldn't be around in 2020. Here Paul is saying, I've ministered and you have been helped because of it. Uh, God has helped them uh, uh, because of the, the fact that God has helped Paul. They are connected in ministry because it has impacted them as well. In verse number 8, he talks about the longing to see them, to minister with them again in person, to hear updates from them, to see God working in their church. There are times where God just provides a partnership with someone else, with another Christian, and boy, how it helps them. I remember the first time that our family met Mark and Aura uh, Pereira. It was in 2014, the early parts of 2014. We were in a church in Tennessee in a missions conference. We were a part of the missions conference, and Mark and Aura were a part of the missions conference. We met them as all the, the missionaries that were there to be a part of it met at the church on the Saturday. And uh, so we met each other then, and immediately just kind of clicked. And then throughout the week, got to talk with them more, got to know them more. And then I believe it was 2016 when Mark and Aura came to our church and presented their ministry at our church. And again, just the time we spent with Mark and Aura, there was a connection there. There was a partnership uh, there. And I'm so thankful that our church uh, chose to support Mark and Aura and be a part of their ministry because uh, every time we just have an opportunity to talk, there is an immediately uh, a connection between us. There's a partnership. There is a like-mindedness. There is a desire to serve God. There is a desire to start churches. There is a desire to minister and to serve. There's a desire to edify. There's a desire just to help uh, uh, each other in ministry. And I think you all have sensed that too. When Mark spends time here and Aura spends time here, our church has just bonded very well with Mark and Aura. I had dinner with Michael Kelly a few weeks back, and Michael shared with me that him and Danielle... He said, there's something about your church that me and Danielle just, we immediately clicked with. There is a, there is a bond there. And he said, I don't know that I can explain it, but there is, we, just, we feel about your church something special, a connection with your church. And that's not a, a weird, super spiritual connection, okay? It is just a natural, they fit. It, it makes sense. There is a commonality between them. There is a partnership. And I pray that we have that with all of our missionaries, and I'm so thankful for the missionaries that we support and the missionaries that we have a small part in. I greatly appreciate that. But that's what we're talking about, that, that passionate partnership, that commonality that Paul felt with the church at Philippi, and I believe the church at Philippi felt it with Paul as well. There is a love and a compassion here for this church. So then that leads to the prayer that Paul has for this church. Look in verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse number 9, he prays that they would be a loving church. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in the knowledge and in all judgment. He prays that their love may abound, that it would continue. That the love that they're showing to their fellow church members, that the love that they're showing to their community, that the love they're showing to the world, that it would continue, that they would continue to be a loving church. Then he prays that they would be a knowledgeable church, as it says there at the end of verse 9, more in knowledge and in all judgment, that they would know God, that they would know right, that they would know what they are supposed to do, that they would follow God in the ways that he would have, that they would listen to God's word, that they would listen to God's teaching, that they would be a church that was knowledgeable in what God would have for them. We've committed our church to be that kind of church, a church that is knowledgeable of what God would have for us. Our name of our church is, is what, what guides in that sense, Bible pathway, that we would follow God's word 
and the pathway that he would have for our church. We're not saying that every church has to do it the way that we do it, but we are saying the way that we do it is the way we believe God wants us to do it. And we're going to follow that, and we continue to try to learn and be knowledgeable of what God desires for us. In verse 10, he prays that they would be a discerning church, that ye may approve things that are excellent. A discerning church. Not everything in the Bible is thou shalt not and thou shalt. Not everything in the Bible is as easy as God just simply laying it out for us, saying you have to do this, you should do this, or you should not do this. But God does teach us in the Bible what he would desire for us, what is right and what is wrong, and what he wants for us. And through our studying of the Bible and through our prayer, God helps us to discern what is right. Know the difference between godly and opinion. Listen, everybody has an opinion. Everybody does. I do. I have strong opinions. Um, and, and as a pastor, I oftentimes get to hear other people's opinions as well. And we have to understand what is godly or what is right and what is opinion. Sometimes it's not a bad opinion, but it's just not what God desires uh, at that time. And we have to be discerning of what God desires for us. And that was Paul's prayer for the church of Philippi. Then in verse 10, it continues, and he prays that they would be a genuine church. It says that uh, you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. A genuine church. Acts 24, 16 says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and towards men. So he says, uh, Paul is praying here, I want you to be genuine or sincere. I want you to be genuine. I want you to do the things that you do because you love God, because it's what you desire to do. I want you to be able to have a clear conscience in what you're doing. As it says in Acts there that uh, he says, I, I do what I, what I do to have a conscience void of offense both of God and of men. That, number one, that I'm not offending God in the things that I'm doing, and that I'm doing it in a peaceable manner so that people who are offended are only offended because they're going to be offended by everything, not because of actually something that I did wrong. So I'm doing what I do to make sure I have a clear conscience that everything that I've done, I've done because I believe it to be right and to be good. And that's the only way you can live a life that is clean or clear of offense of God and men. Doing what you're doing because you know, because you've prayed about it, because you've studied God's word on it, you know it's what God would have you to do. Be genuine in the way that you live. Be genuine in the way that you do church. And then lastly, he prayed that they would be a fruitful church. Verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. This is important. He says, I want you to be fruitful by Jesus and for God's glory. Fruitful, again, can be looked at different ways. Either way, it is producing, right? Something is being produced. Uh, but, uh, you know, some people would argue, well, if you only have so many people in your church, then are you fruitful? And these kinds of things. And I don't believe you can be a numerical church and, and be, be focused on numbers. We always want to have more people. We always want to help more people. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to be fruitful by God, having God provide the fruit, and then for God's glory, for the purpose of God's glory. Fruitful by God's definition and not the world's definition, not our definition, but God's definition of fruitful. You see, Paul was praying that this church would continue, honestly. If you look back at all these things that we've looked at, they would be, continue to be a loving church, that they would continue to be a knowledgeable church, a discerning church, a genuine church, and a fruitful church. And I believe that's a prayer 
that, that uh, should be applied to our church today as well. I believe that God desires that we are a loving church, that we show love towards people, towards people in our church, towards people outside of our church, towards our neighbors, towards our community, towards those that we are, have a hard time loving. Uh, God desires that our church be a loving church. And we've talked about this before, and I don't want to spend time on it today, but God's definition of love and the world's definition of love are different. And so we don't have to love people the way the world tells us to love people. We have to love people the way that God tells us to love people. We have to be a knowledgeable church, a church that is constantly knowing and learning more of God and more of what is right. We need to be a discerning church and knowing that uh, uh, discerning between what is good and what is not good. And I say it that way because, again, sometimes there are things that are not evil or wicked, but God just doesn't desire it, at the very least in this church. We don't worry about what other churches are doing. It's none of our business. It's not our problem. We don't answer for what the other churches do. We answer for what our church does. And so we ought to be discerning about what is good for our church, what is right for our church. Then we have to be a genuine church, a church that loves because we love. Not because we're supposed to, but because we actually do love. A church that does what we do because we desire it and we believe it to be right by God. And so we're doing it out of nature, so to say. Naturally, it, just, it's, it is what is our church. And so we are doing those things. And a church that is fruitful by God and for His glory. We don't ever give credit um, to, uh, to anything but God. If we put out a, uh, an ad and people come because of it, we don't give the, the ad the glory for it. We give God the glory for it. If we have an event and an activity, and we, we hope to do this again uh, soon, the family extravaganza or vacation Bible school or the kids extravaganza or different things like that, and people come to our church as a result of it, we don't give the event the glory. We give God the glory. If we have a yard sale and we bring in $1,000, we don't give the yard sale the credit for that or the, the items the credit for that. No, it's because of God. God gets the credit and God gets the glory. No matter what it is, our church is going to be fruitful only by God and for God. The church that, that gives credit to uh, whether it be uh, different things that they do in the church, uh, methods and things like that, those people... They might have a larger church than us, but if they're giving their, uh, their methodology the credit for their church growth, guess what? God doesn't get the glory. The Bible tells us God is a jealous God. God is the only person that deserves glory, especially uh, and above all in the church. Uh, we've seen people who want the glory. I've seen it in churches, people who sing for their own glory, people who teach for their own glory, people who clean for their own glory, people who do whatever for their own glory. And listen, I hope that we're grateful, we're appreciative of those that, that, that are involved and do their part to help. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for it, and I'm trying to do better of expressing that gratitude because I'm not very good at that. But uh, at the end of the day, it should be done for God's glory. And if it's not, what's the point of doing it? If you're singing for your own glory, guess what? This is the wrong church. You're not going to get a record deal by singing at this church. Uh, you're not going to get 
uh, anything super special by seeing at this church when it comes to the world standards. But if you do it for the Lord, the Lord will bless. And the Lord will give you uh, your due reward. And better off, God will be praised and glorified within the church and maybe the people sitting in the church. The reason, by the way, we do special music when we do it, the purpose and the timing of it, it's, it's there to prepare the people listening for the message of God. So we sing it right before the sermon is preached. And the purpose of a special song that we do, and this could vary a little bit. Kids are singing. We like to get kids involved and things like that. And I'm not sure if they fully can comprehend that. But the idea in the songs that we sing as special music is to help prepare the heart and the person listening for what is about to come, the message of God's Word. And so we do these things for the purpose of the glory of God, and we need to make sure that we are this. This Church of Philippi, and there's, there's some incredible things in the book of Philippians. Um, when we get to chapter 4, I'm really excited about it, but we're still a number of weeks away from that. Uh, but there's some great stuff about a Christian and mental health and, and being mentally where God wants you to be. But within this book, we're going to, to learn, as God is teaching this church of Philippi, encouraging and challenging them in different ways, we're going to learn many things. Next week, we'll close out chapter 1. Uh, as we continue forward, there's some, some really, really good verses uh, in here that are going to teach us a lot. Um, but today, when I, can I encourage you this in the same way that Paul was trying to encourage uh, the church at Philippi? Number one, understand that we are servants of God. He was doing this by example. We're servants of God and no one else. We are bound to or purchased by God. So let's serve him. Then let's love. Uh, and love will bring us joyful remembrance, continual prayer, godly fellowship, Christian confidence, and a passionate partnership. And then our prayer ought to be that we would be a loving church, a knowledgeable church, a discerning church, a genuine church, and a faithful church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for letting us come today. Thank you for your word and what it can teach us. And God, I pray that you would just uh, uh, continue to develop this church into the church you want it to be. God, I pray that this morning, if there's anything that you've spoken to us about, that God, you would continue to train and to teach and to guide us in the way that you'd have us to go. Lord, help us to follow it. Help us to be obedient to it. Lord, I pray like Paul, we would encourage one another. Lord, I pray that as we love people, we see that uh, all the things that come with being compassionate and loving those around us. God, may we have a joyful uh, remembrance of those fellow Christians, a continual prayer for them, a godly fellowship, Lord, there's nothing like that, a confidence in you, Lord, that you will see us through what you've started and, Lord, that we will continue to have a partnership one with another, understanding that we are connected because of your word and the gospel. And, God, I pray that our church would be loving, knowledgeable, discerning, genuine. And, God, that we would give you all the glory through the fruit that you provide for our church. And, God, we're so thankful for that you're, what you're doing for us. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you please stand with me? We won't have a long invitation today. But if the Lord's spoken to you about something today that you'd like to pray about, I pray that you would. Maybe today you just take a moment and say, Lord, thank you for what you're doing in our church. Thank you for what you've provided for our church. God, help our church. That's what we need to be praying today. God, help our church to be what you want it to be, a truly loving church and knowledgeable and discerning and genuine and fruitful. If you're thankful for the church that God's brought you to, would you thank him for it and would you pray for his help that we go forward and be what God want us, wants us to be?
Jason, would you come uh, up here for just a second, please? We're going to sing just the first verse of Amazing Grace, um, and, and we'll be dismissed. Thank you for your good attention this morning. I hope that you'll be back at 1 o'clock uh, to join us if you're able to uh, as well. Jason's going to lead us in Amazing Grace, just the first verse, um, I guess, chorus, whatever that is, of Amazing Grace, and then we'll be dismissed. Mm-hmm.